Welcome to Codex Vex. My name is Dux, and I'm your host. And I'm your co-host, Tyler. And this is a podcast about video game history, where we talk about things that are historically relevant for anything video game related. Yeah, it could be a, a deep dive into a specific game series or a specific topic about video game history or culture. And the kick is, is that only one of us knows what we're going to talk about today. And Docs knows what we're going to talk about today, and I don't. Tyler doesn't know shit. That's just a rule of thumb. Yeah, it is, it is a rule of thumb. Does Tyler <laughs> know what we're talking about? Probably not. Do you know what's going on in your life, though? Do I know what's going on in my life? <laughs> what's going on in your life, dude? Uh, well, as I say, it, it wouldn't be the start of an episode if I didn't say, God damn, I've been so busy lately. It's been crazy. Have you been, have you been writing on your dissertation? In a surprise twist? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like legit near the end of a dissertation, um, like two, three months and I'm done, which is what I've said every fucking episode. So who knows? Yeah. Um, I, ever since I've known Tyler, which is about... <laughs> uh 72 years by now every day that that we've met he's been talking about his dissertation (laughs) and i'm still pretending that i'm interested but it's it's fading fading (laughs) someday in the not so distant future i will be done with this massive document that has ruled over my life i don't know what i i don't know what i'm gonna do with myself afterward dude it's the worst curse you've required for yourself in your life I hope you you get rid of that at some point. (laughs) Very soon. But fun things, though, um, I've started painting again. So uh, I took a break from my my Necrons from Warhammer 40k, and I started painting up some Space Marines, which are like the most cliche thing that everybody paints. But I had some from a starter box, and I thought, well, maybe I'll paint up some Blood Ravens. And so if you've ever played any of the Dawn of War games... Uh, those are the chapter that they made up for Dawn of War. And I always said, well, I kind of hate Space Marines, but if I ever painted them, I'd paint Blood Ravens just for the meme, meme potential. So. Nice. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it's been really cathartic. So yeah. uh, other than that, I've been messing around with Sekiro. Uh, that game just kicks me in the teeth. Uh, I think I most recently killed that giant bull with flame horns or whatever that yeah you, you're you're in the you're in the really shadows still you you have so much to go but it's okay <laughs> i usually try to like when i play it i usually try to beat like one boss and then i'm like okay i've exhausted all that i can handle from this game and then i then i move on um and other than that i've been speed running mega man 8 which is sort of like one of the wayward mega man games that was on the playstation that is like not fondly remembered but i i think that maybe that's kind of like uh an unjust assessment of that game yeah dude you're busy that's so much stuff i'm just sitting here staring at the wall doing nothing all day (laughs) well what have you been up to looking at my watch being like when's the next episode gonna be recorded (laughs) no i'm I'm actually if you guys didn't know docs literally sits around all day waiting for us to do an episode and i have to tell him that he has to wait it's it's been too soon yeah, I call him once a day, and he tells me, "Ducks, you gotta wait." No, I've been, <laughs> I've been in the process of moving because I, I finished my semester for now, and I gotta, I'm, I'm moving to a new place, which is, I don't know how it, how it is with you guys, but if there's one thing that I really despise, in life, it's moving. It's not because I don't like going to a new place, which is really nice, but the process of moving itself is horrible. 
It's awful. It's just absolutely terrible. And I hope I never have to do it again. And I say that every time, but uh, who knows? You never well, this know. time you're moving into a house. So hopefully you could. You could just yeah. live there forever. You could, yeah. Maybe it just goes on forever. Maybe everything will be joyful, happy forever. Yes. <laughs> That's the way I think about life. You know me very well. I'm an, I, yes. I, I, I have an entirely optimistic view of the future. And we, I will move only once in my life and then never again. It's not like I will have a child at some point and that child will then move. And because I'm the dad, I will have to organize the whole thing and it will turn into a fucking other move. And like, okay, let's calm down. But this is not the end of moving for me. <laughs> <laughs> Docs, uh, I, ho- I hope you're doing all right, man. <laughs> I'm, doing, I'm doing really good. Let's talk Deep about breaths. something else. Deep breaths. So, so, if people wanted to find us, there's a few quick ways that you could do that. How could one do that, Tyler? Tell me. <laughs> you could send us an email at codexrexpodcast at gmail.com, which I will note, we have been getting actual emails with actual uh, topics in them. So thanks to those who, who have emailed us. Wasn't and it just enamel again? <laughs> Listen. <laughs> It was just enamel again, okay? I, so, I really like so, enamel's email because it's really nice. He really has good suggestions. But you, you're making it sound like we got a new email from a new person, but it's just the dude that's always really nice to us and encourages us to go on. But it's just enamel again, Tyler. I, I want you all to know out there that every single time on this podcast that I have tried, even in the slightest, to make us sound better than we are, Docs throws me under the bus immediately. Like, like literally, it's like he has the bus ready and I'm under the tires. <laughs> yeah, dude. I'm ready to anyway, jump sh- and kick you with both of my feet into the race. <laughs> Shout out to Enamel. Thank you. We did read, we did read your suggestion. Um, okay, so you can email us there. You can find us on Twitter at Codex Rex Podcast um, on Twitter, and you can find me on Twitch. I'm Vegan Tyler and I stream three days a week. That's it. Yeah. Otherwise, you'll just have to wait and, I don't know, listen to old episodes and go, wow, this show's just really jumped the shark. <laughs> I used to listen to them when they when they had, you know, when they were talking about Portal and their microphones didn't work. Yeah, you know? when it still was bean content mostly and now it's, I don't know, about video games. <laughs> wait, it's all bean content? <laughs> Always was. This was bean content. <laughs> Shall we, <laughs> shall we start the episode? Yeah, let's do this shit. Let's do this. Tell me a tale, Jan Dox. Young okay. Doxington. Uh, this time we'll start out the episode a bit different than I usually do, because usually I do these historical expositions about where we are. We're not going to mm-hmm. do that. I'm just going to start out with a question for you. And that is, Uh-oh. have you ever been in a club? Like not in a formal club, like we're in the club of cave dwelling nerds that don't shower regularly or something like that, but a real actual club that you have to sign up for and then pay monthly fees to stay part of. Um, 
So yes and no. Um, most of the clubs that I've ever been a part of were academically affiliated, like not mm -hmm. necessarily academic things. If you want a laundry list, uh, I was once the president of a DDR club in high Dance school. Dance Revolution. Oh, the one and the same. Uh, that's a story for another day. Maybe if we ever do a DDR episode. President uh, of I was DDR. Okay. president of DDR club. Oh, yeah. Uh, I also was in a whole bunch of different clubs in college. I uh, was part of and was the president of a like tabletop RPG club. Um, I was the president of a, a political science club that I founded because there uh, hadn't gotta, been one. You, you, I'm, I'm just, I, I can't listen. I, we got to rewind. So you've been president of the DDR club. How does uh -huh. one become president? I was going to do an episode about something, but now I got to ask you some questions. That's about okay. This. Um, if you want to become president of the DDR <laughs> club, do you have to do a dance off? No, no, no. Okay. It was actually much more simple. Okay. So we were in high school and in high school, you could create a club around anything as long as it got approved by the administration. And as long as someone, uh, signed off on it, like you had to like a, like a teacher supervisor kind of so thing. So you go, you went to a teacher and told them that you want to make a DDR club. And then they were like, what's DDR? And what did you tell them? Mm -hmm. Well, I essentially told them that it was this dance game. So what we used to do, God, this, it, it was so scruffy. We were so hungry to play DDR back in the day with, and we all had these pat like pat mats. And I used to carry like my PS2 around in my backpack and we would hook it up in the library. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, so this went on for like years, like for real, this went on for years until we eventually convinced the school to spend some of their like physical education budget uh buying ddr pads and it became a module that you could take in gym this is a high school movie waiting to be made it's <laughs> no no DDR no high school or something no. like that and it's about these nerds <laughs> discovering <laughs> the art of dance for themselves <laughs> to express themselves and how it makes them feel good as human beings but there's these bullies that can't appreciate them but that one bully is really in love with the president of the ddr club and then they start kissing behind the gym and that's how the story goes and in the end oh, someone dies But DDR kind of helps the president of DDR club out of the thing. And then they kind of walk into the sunset in the suburb neighborhood. And it makes them feel really good about still having something in their life. Docs, uh, I don't know how you just like summarized my high school experience, but I will not <laughs> kiss and tell. I'm not going to tell you how many bullies I kiss behind the gym. <laughs> That stays just between us. Okay, let's go back to the episode. We were talking about, we okay. were talking about clubs. I um, rambled. So I was in a DDR club. I was in a role-playing games club in, in college. Uh, I was like a, a political science club that we would do like political type debates and mm -hmm. talk. And then in grad school, I was in uh, like a grad student organization and we paid dues and stuff there. Cool. Um, and um, That's all why, I can think of. Why would one join a club? If, if you know, if you've been in a club, what's the reason one joins the club? Well, there could be a lot of reasons. Depends on the club. I would say the easiest one would be common interest. You have a common interest in something. You could also be trying to like advance yourself in some way. So like, um, like there's like leadership clubs or things like that I've heard of, or like leadership societies. And maybe you're trying to like get ahead or like, I don't know, I guess like fraternities and sororities are sort of like a club that you sort of pay to be yeah. in and you're trying to advance yourself some way. That's I don't know. two of the reasons I could think of too. And then there's another one, which I think also come into play if you think of fraternities. And that is sometimes you can't afford your hobby. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Because it's, sometimes it's really expensive. 
Um, for example, mm -hmm. maybe some of your friends in the DDR club couldn't afford the dance pad. Right. And they lend yours. Yeah, that's that makes complete sense. Um, so can you think of a hobby that's also expensive that might be related to this episode? Uh, I mean, like, I don't know, Warhammer comes to mind or something like that. But like... Okay, this is... Okay, we're going to do this slowly. This is a podcast about... <laughs> video games. Okay. What hobby <laughs> is related to video games? Um, video... Video games? Games. Very good, Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> listen, I don't know. Like, listen, your episodes are sometimes like, hey, by the way, I'm going to do this episode about this guy and he dies. <laughs> hey, do you ever just like think about shit? Yeah. <laughs> well, let's think about it together. So I don't know what you're doing. Now I'm it's on good. the defensive. <laughs> it's good. And, and also to play video games and maybe to, to um, yeah. be, be part of the video game thing, you need hardware, right? You need you do, uh, yeah. You need a computer or you maybe need a console. And those, even today, are pretty expensive. So it would make sense mm -hmm. to make a club for that to, to get together and have have a video game club. So if you're at home, if you've never joined a club or you, if, you, if you don't know what it is, and if you want to join a club, you could maybe come up with a video game club to get people together and do that. But the important thing is, video games are an expensive hobby today, but 50 to 30 years ago, video games were the, one of the most expensive hobbies you could have. It's true. Well, like in the 70s, a personal computer would uh, cost you about a hundred thousand dollars <laughs> yeah well that you usually just saw them at universities right like yeah, that's large enough institutions about. that could play in them. the pdp1 episode is where yeah, the, the pdp1 program. would be present in universities and you would try to get shared time on that machine so if we look like 50 to 30 years we we can see that there was a movement which involved computer hobbyists and one of these movements was led by someone called Mike Lord from Essex. Essex okay. is in the UK. And he founded something called the ACC, which is short for Amateur Computer Club. I hey. found the first issue of this really neat newsletter that Mike started publishing uh, in the founding year of the club in 1973. And it has this really gritty electronic typewriter aesthetic. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a link. Okay. So you can describe it. You can click on that. It's an actual, it's actually photocopied, scanned of the original. First thing I'd say is that it has this really gritty typewriter aesthetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. So it kind of looks to, wow, this like, boy, this takes me back. This literally looks like the kind of stuff that you would print on like a really early printer, which I'm going to guess they did. Um, yep. how interesting. It's like a pamphlet, right? Right. Although it looks a little bit more informational than that. I, I would call this like a packet, like a packet of mm -hmm. information almost is what it looks like to me. And it's got like instructions in here on how to do stuff. This is fascinating. Yeah. So this okay. guy, Mike Lord, he just liked mm -hmm. computers and he just liked to talk to people about computers. So he made this club and you could send him some money and he would send you his newsletter. And he would send you tips on how to do things. And what you could also do is, so if any of you guys are interested in this pamphlet, I will share it on the sources later. Um, it's a nice okay. little little window into the early days of computer entities. Uh, what, what year was this again? 1973. This is the newsletter, the first one that they did. This is issue one. Okay. 
They released this from 1973 to 1979, and then even longer, but this was the original ACC. The ACC is um, much older than this, though. It went on much longer. Okay. Um, on, on the top of the pamphlet, if you look at it, you can see kind of an introduction clause uh, to the club. It explains the ACC, which is pretty simple. It says the Amateur Computer Club is open to all interested in the design, construction, or programming of computers as a hobby. So it was super casual. Just wanted people to get together and engage this new hobby, which wasn't old, about computing things. Well, and what we've learned, at least even in our work on these episodes, is that there really wasn't a lot of resources. If you were really into computers, it wasn't like you could just, you know, oh, shit, my whatever thing is malfunctioning. I'll go into Google and figure out how to fix that. And there's 17 YouTube videos and you look at them all and you know exactly what to do. And they're like, oh, you put a one where you should have put a zero. Fix it. You're good. Absolutely. You, know, you had to go somewhere. Wow. What was... um. Oh, I can't remember the episode. We did an episode where there was these kids and they went and met this guy. I should know because I wrote it. I've already forgotten which one it was. And uh, they called him like the wizard or something because he was like. In Crash Bandicoot in the beginning? No, that's too old. Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Regardless, uh, you know, if you, what would you do if you wanted to program something? You just have to find somebody who knew how to do it. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, and that's what what Mike encouraged the people. He gave them a platform to share information. Like as you saw in the end of these newsletters, Mike would put these long cheat sheets to ease the work with different kind of hardware, like a table of the binary codes for all possible characters on the IBM 7090-4, or illustration on how to implement a square root algorithm. Shit like that, like little tips on how to do little programming things or how to solve hardware problems on all kinds of machines. Apparently, you could send anything computer-related to Mike. You could just send it to him, and he'd put it in the next issue. So this is not just all written by him. He just he, he hmm. just liked to... He was like a, a forum, and he That's get really information, cool. and he, he'd publish anything. And it really was a community effort. You could send diagrams of your machine, manuals, tips on how to get free computer time from local universities, or just tables of how expensive certain hardware was. Because all of this was information that you had to get hold of. There was no central point that was commonly agreed where you could get this kind of information. It didn't exist yet. One of the first members of the club, Ian Spencer, has created this website where you can look up all of the original scans of all of the newsletters from 1973 to 1979. So if any of you have like a final coming up or currently are in the process of writing a dissertation, which really <laughs> needs to get finished soon, this is uh -huh. the right rabbit hole to fall into. Oh, okay. Uh, and what was that guy's name? Ian Spencer? Ian Spencer, yeah. And it, it, it will prevent I'll, you from succeeding because that is my only wish. Stop all of you from getting ahead in life. No. I'll put that on my list of um, procrastinations and uh, I'll make sure I get to that ASAP. Yeah, I'll give you the link to the entire thing right now. Just I want to make sure <laughs> that you read that. And I want you all to point back to this moment when I'm living in a box underneath a bridge and I'm holding a piece of paper that just says PhD on it and crying. Um, it was this moment yeah. that docs ruined my life. Um, you're welcome ahead of time. So, yeah. <laughs> but where are we going with this? This is important. Okay. <laughs> well, you'll see. The ACC started growing fast, though. And it, it's because you, you already described it, but also because of another thing, because it really carried the spirit 
of the early computer days that we encountered so often. Most recently with Trip Hawkins, that had a vision of this free-spirited video game artist. But we also saw it before in the end of the Mana episode with Koenige, who designed that roguelike called Moria to share with his friends for free. Or even we saw it with Space War, where people all over the US started sharing their source codes freely. Because this is what this was going to be. It would not be commercialized. This was going to be a communal experience, this new hobby. Which is why today, you know, we live in this free-spirited cyber-utopia, right? Because it, Absolutely. It, it never took a wrong turn. Never happened. No. No, no. No, no we, never, we never let capitalism ruin something good. No. We would never do that. No. But seriously. <laughs> <laughs> this clip it's was, time to serious the fuck up. <laughs> this, this clip, we were, we were laughing too hard. I had to put a stop to it. Um, of course. But <laughs> this clip was an obvious symptom of the zeitgeist in relation to usage of personal computing. Now that we know that the ACC does that, we jump forward 11 years. ACC okay. still exists. We leave Mike and Ian Spencer behind, but the ACC is still there. It has grown and it has opened branches all over Europe. And it had like so we're in 1984? Yeah, 19, yeah, we are 1984 okay. now. It has branches all over Europe. It has clubhouses in many cities. Like, for example, there was the Kingsway ACC, KACC in Dundee. Dundee um, is a Scottish town about 35 miles north of Edinburgh. The crocodiles live there, right? Yeah, that's... Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> that's where the crocodiles live, Tyler. Yes. <laughs> Not 35 <laughs> miles north of Edinburgh. You, you'll yeah. find the crocodiles. <laughs> the crocodile Dundee. <laughs> um, <laughs> something, something broke inside of me. <laughs> so in this crocodile town... Um, well, pause real quick. I just... This is the kind of shit that I do to Andrea, like, Andrea, my fiance. This is the kind of shit that I do to Andrea like all day. And today, like, I'll give you an example. Like, she's like, What are you what are you thinking about? And I was like, All right, get this. Imagine this. You're watching TV and suddenly someone comes on and they start advertising a product. It's shampoo for your pubic hair. And we call it shampoos. <laughs> and she just looked at me and she was like, Okay. <laughs> so this is just this is this is what I do all the time. I'm sorry. Yeah, sorry, I'm, not sorry. I'm glad it gives you joy. <laughs> it does. <laughs> all right, what were we talking about? This is crocodiles and local branch of the ACC, mm -hmm. 35 miles okay. miles north of mm -hmm. Edinburgh, in the town. That okay. has a name. Uh, and these guys would meet up in in the ACC and they would bring their own machines or use the locally available ones to learn the ins and outs of programming. Uh, three of these guys were David Jones, who was an electronics engineer by profession, Mike Daly, and Russell Kay. And those two were young programmers. All of them were around 20 years old in 1984 and what's important is that the company, Commodore, they had not been crushed by their own greed yet. 
and they were still one of the biggest personal computer manufacturers in the world. So Daly, Jones, and Kay, um, and their other friends at the ACC, they used machines like the Commodore 64. There was Commodore competitors, like the ZX Spectrum by Sinclair Research Limited, but just like today, a kid would dream of a next-generation console. In those days, they would dream of getting an Amiga 1000 for Christmas. You know, one of those Peter Molyneux got gifted for lying. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> of course. Listen, we can't have an episode where we don't talk about our old friend Peter. Yeah, he, he's not going to show up again, but I guess I'm going to feature him when <laughs> the Amiga 1000 is mentioned because he scammed one out of Commodore. Um, so <laughs> even 10, he scammed 10 Amiga 1000s out of Commodore. Um, Listen, he could have pulled the beans out of his bag. He chose not to. He and chose, I think he made he, the right call. He chose not to. The ACC mostly provided the central location and the infrastructure for learning how to handle hardware like this. Newer yeah. machines were not acquired by the club because they couldn't afford it. It's really expensive. If they wanted to use current technology, they had to bring their own hardware to the ACC clubhouse. It was, you can imagine, it was sort of a disconnected LAN party. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. In the early days, Jones was a regular attendee of these get-togethers in Dundee, but he also had a full-time job at Timex, which is a company <laughs> that produces <laughs> wristwatches. Since Jones, uh. since he's a hardware expert, he, he already knew his way around computers. He had, he, he had an intuitive understanding of how to handle a computer. In 1988, though, four years later... Like they, they were just hanging out for four years. It was just a casual thing they do when they were off work. He would he, he'd come into the ACC with big news. In his arms, he was holding an Amiga One Thousand, which cost oh, shit, which cost three thousand dollars at the time. That's crazy. And he must have said something like, "Guys, I lost my job." I spent my entire payoff on this machine. I will be an independent software developer now. Who wants to join me? Oh. <laughs> and, and so Jones started hanging out at the ACC a lot now because he had a lot of time. Not only because he was unemployed, but also because his parents were majorly pissed at him for not trying to find a new job in hardware. And so he took some software development courses at the local college, I think. And they started doing what they always do at the ACC, and that is they develop games. It's so weird because they had these hardware. They could have done anything with computers, but what humans, that's something I always think about. Whenever we get some piece of technology, the first thing we do when we experiment is we always make it turn, turn it into a game. It's like we have this need to do that. It's a human, it's a basic human need to gamify everything. Yeah, pretty much everything. I mean, you know, there's like every other week there's like, guy installs doom on his smart fridge or whatever right like yeah. we gotta how, have games everywhere how can i make this playable imagine this situation it's 2 a.m and you're hungry and you're standing in front of the fridge trying to decide what it is that you want to eat and you think you know what would really help me play through a couple of levels of doom well guess what you're in luck motherfucker doom is a good game can't argue with that even though <laughs> Sorry to yeah. derail. They were um, a general computer club. It always led to that. It's always, it always led to game development. All they ever did 
at least at this branch of the ACC, was make games. Sometimes they collaborated, sometimes they had projects on their own, and sometimes it was a mix of that. You know, so just... I, I can see this, though, <clears throat> and I think, I think I could say why. All right, so if you're hanging out with your friends, right, and you're like, hey, we're all really into computers, are you really going to sit around and be like, you know what, dude, I had the fucking greatest idea for tax software like what if you could get this software that like deducted all of your business expenses from your overhead wouldn't that be fucking radical no it's a bunch of 20 somethings sitting around like of course they're gonna be like what kind of fun shit can we do with this totally it totally tracks yeah absolutely so you just hung out and and talked right and it was it was like an actual studio experience except that it wasn't a real development studio and they did not only make games for fun but they actually some of those games got released on a very small scale but still there was a financial intention here it, it wasn't entirely this whole we are free-spirited game designers that just do games they wanted to make money with this that was their goal especially now that jones had no job and this was his only plan to, to do what in his life he was going to be i'm going to be a game designer and his parents weren't having it, so he had to prove something. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Well, I don't think that this would be a story about game development if somebody didn't piss off their parents. Yeah, probably. Uh, if we, maybe, maybe one day we found a few episodes with parents in them. I remember in the Scum episode, but the, the dad of the Scum creator was really nice about it i remember yeah and come to think of it um trip hawkins his dad gave him a loan to get started up oh i remember that too board game. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah we yeah so like yeah there are supportive parents out there well actually you know what there was an episode two where the these two guys got together it might have been the crash bandicoot episode and they um they just like copied a game like off of like they made their own sprites but it was just like a one-to-one copy of a game and their dad was like hey um this is plagiarism and um what if we like i gave you some money and you did something else <laughs> so like <laughs> yeah there's been supportive parents in there like yeah yeah so you could get set some guidelines yeah okay so for example as an example for published games by these guys Mike Daly and Steve Hammond, two of the guys that were hanging out in the ACC, they made a game called Freak Out, which was kind of like a breakout game. You know, the game okay. where you have a pedal on the on the on the bottom, and your goal is to move this this pedal around horizontally, and you have to reflect this moving ball to to pop away these tiny plates on the top of the screen. And if you you have to remove all of the plates before you, you lose control of the ball. I used to love that game when I was a kid. It's a very um, basic arcade like game. Uh, my grandfather taught me how to uh, use a computer when I was a kid. He he had a computer and had like early versions of Windows and stuff. And uh, he would always set up like this little, he had this like folder or whatever that was just full of games that I could play. And I remember Breakout was in there and I would sit and play it for hours. Yeah, Breakout, I think Breakout is one of those games that shows up still in new iterations all the time. It's, it's an yeah. absolute classic. Would be interesting to find the first breakout game but still like it, 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 it sounds simple but you got you gotta know whenever you talk about games making a game is never simple it, it always is complicated it always is a lot of work and making even the most simple looking concept feel as like a good game experience is so much hard work even if you're just copying something that already exists 
And just like Freak Out, all of these games that they designed rarely were entirely original ideas, but because this was the the arcade, the, the big time of the arcade, where, where you would go to the arcade and play games, and what they, and also many of the other people that we discussed did, is they just um, they'd copy their first ideas from the games that they played themselves in the arcade. We already saw that too many times, that you learn programming by copying something else and thereby you acquire the main skills while doing that. And once you got the software skill down, you can approach the creative part of the whole process because you got in the beginning, you got that out of the way by just making something that something somebody else already made um, and trying to get to the same level of quality. But you can learn a lot from that, right? Like I'm sure you've seen... Uh, the tutorial always kicking around. It's like a 3D design tutorial. And it's always like like a cup of coffee and a donut with sprinkles on it. And sometimes someone will be like, I think someone even recently posted in the Discord, might have been Illicit Owl, was like, oh, hey, I made this thing. And, and like everyone was like, oh, you did the tutorial. You made the donut. Um, because that's like the first step uh, to yeah. like learning how to do some of that. And if you can compare it to other people, then you know where you are in that. Yeah, just uh, the same thing. Make make simple shapes uh, is the same as design simple programs um, to to learn basic concepts of what right. can happen in software. Similar to that, Jones used his new Amiga 1000, which all of the others were super envious about, to create a game similar to, I don't know if you know Salamander. Uh, I think you Americans, you called it Life Force. I have heard of it, but I've never played it. It was a really big side-scroller by Konami, and mm. Jones just copied that. And he called his version CopperCon 1. And Co with, Copper Con 1. Mm -hmm, it, it was a working title. Uh, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> did, did it publish as CopperCon 1? No, it did not. Um, okay. With, okay. Some, with some help from, with his, from his friends at the ACC, it turned out really well that a publisher from Liverpool picked it up. This okay. is when they decided to band together as a development studio. They iterated through a few names for the studio because they were like, okay, apparently we're making money now because this publisher is really, really, really likes this. So we got to have a name. And they were like, okay, we could call ourselves Acme Studios or Visual Voyage. But they ended up with DMA Design because DMA, they saw in a manual for the Amiga, it stands for Direct Memory Access. And they thought DMA design sounds nice, and that's what they did. So that yeah, is the that, name. that sounds like a studio name from the 80s. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yeah. It totally does. DMA design. Yeah. <laughs> I'm into it. So CopperCon 1 was published under another name called Menace. And... Jones used DMA design in the next few years, hire all of his mates from the ACC because he was the boss now. And including to also who was also it was Mike Daly and Russell K too. In between 1988 and 1989, Menace sold about 20,000 copies. Which, That's pretty good. Yeah, it, it could be played on the Amiga, the Atari ST, the Commodore 64 and on MS-DOS and it earned them about 20,000 pounds. And that's not a huge amount of money, but enough money to pay some people to get into the development of more games, which they instantly did. 
And since they felt like they kind of figured out the recipe for minor success, they just made another side-scroller. Because that what that's what Menace was. It was flying a spaceship sideways and shooting enemies. Um, and they were heavily inspired by all of these, as we talked about, these coin-operated games that they like to play at the arcade. And those were very often side-scrollers too, like Salamander from Konami. And what's really interesting is that these guys were really good at visual design. If you ever tried to work with colors or with color composition, as you did too already, as I know, and you look at their games, it's really obvious how they had knack for how to design the colors of a game. They made clones, basically, of far more successful games, and these clones felt really good. Speaking of design... The next game would be called Blood Money. And it was kind of the same jam as Menace, also a side-scroller, just that you were in a helicopter and you were shooting things. And the visual design, again, it was it was really good, but I did encounter something great. And I will show you. We won't be able to show it to the listener right now, but I say it to every listener, you, I will post the link in the sources. You have to listen to this. This is... I found the original Blood Money soundtrack. And while the entire game looks pretty elegant, the soundtrack of the intro screen is such a mess. It made me cry <laughs> laugh so hard, but it just I couldn't stop listening. It's physically painful to engage, but there's no way to press stop. You have to go through with it. I'll post the link of the soundtrack with the sources. I will show it to Tyler now, and afterwards he will be broken. The video okay, will have, okay. uh, but also the video will have some good footage of the game, so you have an idea what's going on. Okay, so you have sent me Blood Money, and I'm gonna click play. Check this out. Okay, the intro music is the best. All right, it's booting up. I, I got. I uh, can't wait. Just wait. Man, now, sag. <laughs> a DMA design game. What? What is this? <laughs> what is this? This is... This is maybe the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> this is so good. It's so catchy, but it's also so bad. Yes. Okay. you. I'm, I'm so with Docs. You guys got to go listen to this. What the fuck? The biggest question is, where is the money? It's it's like someone what had a is... sound box and they just kept smashing their head into it. But also what it's... if we took all these clips of all these things and just mashed them all together into this horrible cacophony of sound? Terrible. Just terrible. I love it so much. <sighs> okay. Well, there. Okay. I'll make sure to put that one up on the Twitter. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> and if you if you want to see a bit of the design, you can um, go to like minute minute six you can see how it looks and you can also see the in-game soundtrack which is much better yeah okay so you're like this little side scroller helicopter thing there are bosses it looks exactly as you'd imagine like a little helicopter game from the 80s to look um it's pretty cool actually now that i'm looking at it yeah it is it's a good game oh okay interesting well thanks for that that oh god what a horrible opener (laughs) Um, I just want that to be our opener. That could be our opener for the podcast. Where the question is, where's the money? (laughs) (laughs) 
That's my question about this podcast. The biggest question is, where is the money? We're going to show this to Enamel, so he's going to love it. Um, <laughs> yes, he will. Yeah. Um, so Blood Money did get some good reviews. The, I don't know why. Um, because it was a good game. It was visually well made. The, the game itself was really fun. The intro is horrific. I don't <laughs> maybe it worked maybe that worked in, in the early in the, in the late 80s it, it is very 80s i guess yeah it seems very i can see late 80s early 90s like if you if you were like when was this from i would say probably that era this yeah. is like the pre-playstation era sort of graphics <laughs> like maybe you could get away with this on like the genesis i'd say yeah. but Maybe you can Maybe. get the <laughs> um, It did get some good reviews and it earned some more money and recognition. They did plan on creating a sequel to Blood Money because they felt like they could add more. Because they wanted to find the answer to where the money was? Yes. In Blood Money 2, you actually find out where mm. the money is. Um, <laughs> okay, just to be clear, in case you guys aren't following, like if you didn't hear this intro, literally, it's this like strange series of different musical tones and this guy just keeps yelling the biggest question is where is the money (laughs) (laughs) um what they want like in most sequels what we encountered is (laughs) that they that if you if you make the first part of something and then after releasing it you always are like man we could have added so much more cool stuff that we never Mm -hmm. added and then they often do that in the sequel it happened in so many games that we looked at and right. their idea was to to add something else to the mix. They came up with an idea for a game called Walker, like walking, and mm-hmm. a game in which you would play a huge bipedal battle mech, and you would go through different levels and use a minigun to melt through enemy hordes. Um, I mean, that sounds awesome. Yeah, it sounds really cool. And Mike Daly, he had been tinkering with this design because they needed a design for these small infantry units that would attack the walker and he was tinkering with a design for really small dynamic dynamic sprites because he had been playing a game called oits oits was for the atari st and it was about staging an airstrike on an enemy base from space and then picking up your troops from the ground it was kind of a mix between space taxi and um i don't know a dogfighting simulator I just had this moment where I was like, I know nothing about any of this. I've never heard of any of these games. And like, what if Docs is just fucking with me right no, I can now? Show you. I, like I actually making up nonsense words. Sounds really good. I have footage <laughs> of this too. I can show you here. I'm, I'm, I know you have cost issues with me, so I brought proof. <laughs> There's a good reason. <laughs> there, Oids. O-I-D-S. Oids. Yeah. That's what the fuck? Um, oh, okay. So you would attack I these know. bases, and there's you see these troops on the ground in the game, and they will look like moving people, but they were only five times five pixels, which is nothing. It's just 25 pixels. Oids has had other iterations, either previously or after. Um, imagine if you have a ship, and the ship is at the bottom of the screen, and the ship uh, has weight to it, and you have to constantly thrust the ship upward to mm-hmm. go places, and you're like shooting in a 360 degree. I wish I knew the other game that this reminded me of, but I know I've seen this before in some other form. This has been done a bunch. Yeah. 
I guess probably the first iteration of this would be Moon Lander, where you just try to That's land, it. where you just try to land the ship. And then yeah. I think this physics idea was further iterated more and more, and there was more stuff added, and then you could fly the ship around and stuff like that. Right, um, right. In Blood Money, they already tried to include small people like that, but they failed to do that. Um, they had these ideas for moving infantry on the ground that the player had to take care of. But even to make a set of 8 times 8 pixel um, characters that looked like a walking person was really difficult. They didn't know how Oids did it, because if you look at the characters in Oids, they looked like nothing, but they looked like people for some reason. Mm-hmm. And during the development of Blood Money, they did they did not manage to achieve this sprite that they felt confident about. But with the development of Walker, they started to feel really good about it. Why did they worry about creating these really small walking people, though? And that is that they wanted to feel like the game had the right scale because the sprites for the helicopter and the submarine and blood money, they were really small themselves. But if you created something even smaller that was on par with the rest of the game's design, you could make something small like the helicopter seem really big. It's a okay. correct scaling like this makes the game feel good. And also it was a huge design feat that you can you can you can attribute to your studio if you pull something like that off it's a proof of concept so to say can i create something of no more no more than 64 dots 8 times 8 that does look like a living thing which and this was important to them also imparted some some sort of character so while they were designing these tiny characters as a feature for another game all of them were obsessed with the idea of these huddled little people and they made animations in which they crushed these heavy these, these little people by heavy objects where they fell into water or fell into spike traps or got splattered by falling into a pit. They murdered them in all kinds of ways because it kind of it was fun to them. And they grew so fond of these ideas that all of a sudden one of their colleagues, Russell Kay, that we talked about before, mm-hmm. um, exclaimed, there's a game in this. And... With that, he meant that these little people were their way into an, finally, into an original idea, which they didn't have yet. Russell knew that it was going to be an original idea because while developing blood money, he had figured out how to make objects track the terrain. Um, Because they were making a gun that you could shoot at the ground like a torpedo and it would follow the ground and you could shoot like turrets like that. And this is how he could also, he could kind of port that to the characters and he could make these tiny little characters walk over a mountain slope without losing mm-hmm. track of the terrain. And not just one character, he could do this in Blood Money with as many people. Um, like in, in Blood Money, he wanted to do this with many um, projectiles at once. So he could just do that to as many people as he wanted. Though... He was kind of sad because that weapon was never included in Blood Money because he never got done with it during the development. But now he was like, I can now add this to this new game that we're just that just can come out of these characters. And so what was the idea for this game that would include these little walking characters? They already knew that the fun part was killing them in horrendous ways. Yeah. So before doing anything else. 
they started designing all kinds of devices to, to murder these creatures, these, these tiny sprites on screen. They made mincers, flamethrowers, nooses, and because the game was going to be about dozens of these little guys running into their death, they started calling them... Lemmings. Yes, this is the Lemmings episode. Yeah. Once you told me that we had all these little sprites and they could all be on the screen and they had fun killing them, I was like, this is fucking Lemmings. Yeah. Great. We talked about this a while back. I was like, dude, you got to do a Lemmings episode Because sometime. it is I'm glad the first game I ever encountered in my life. Yeah. Yeah. A small side story. Do you know why people believe that Lemmings kill themselves? I do not. Lemmings apparently have a lot of myth about them. Because okay. they are real creatures. They exist. So prove it. In f- <laughs> in, in Did fifth, you come ready to prove it? I, I have information. You will have to fo- uh, look at my sources afterwards. Oh, in okay. 15th... No, you better bet I'll be reading those sources. <laughs> oh, sorry. Just say what you were going to say. I'm sorry. <laughs> in 1530, some dude called Zeigler claimed that lemmings spawn in the sky and then, <laughs> and then fall down during storms. Because sometimes what? after storms, they would be found around fields dead in great, great amounts. And <laughs> that they would fall down from the sky and then die all over the place. Which was quickly disproven by some historian called Worm. And he figured out that they can't be created in the sky. <laughs> and they just get carried over by storms from somewhere else. And he mostly figured that out by looking at them and being like, these just look like any other rodent. Yeah, they're just little like rat critters. Why why should they spawn in this guy? This doesn't make sense (laughs) at all. I just love some guy going out to a field and being like, "How the fuck did these rats get here? They must have spawned in the sky." All those uh, rats are up there fucking in the sky, and sometimes they fall down. Early natural science were just nonsense. Um, Then some dude called (laughs) Linnaeus found the origin of the lemming because that was still unknown. He found the origin of the lemming populations and the myth of the lemming spawning in the sky and falling to their death, it was done. But this wasn't the end of the lemming myth. Apparently, people widely believed that lemmings would deliberately kill themselves because very often big amounts of them would be found washed ashore dead next to oceans or rivers. And for some reason, people were like, well, why is this happening? They probably just kill themselves. That's the only explanation. <laughs> well, mating season's over. Guess it's uh, time to off myself. And Into the, the ocean I go. The thing is that they believe that this is caused by, de- by a deliberate decision to end their own life. But as many other species, if a population gets too dense, they start migrating. And these yeah. lemmings, they migrate in big numbers maybe even um, uh, huge quantities, and they can swim. And sometimes they have to make decisions. Like, maybe if we go this way or over this river, we can find a good place to live. And But they don't have the best judgment on if they can swim through a river. So what happens sometimes, and not on purpose, is that they all die while trying to do that. So That's sometimes really it is really sad. So sometimes That's you found like sad. 300 lemmings washed ashore because they all died trying to find a new home. Oh my God, uh, these lemmings are in a ritualistic suicide cult. And, and for some reason, people think like this is a <laughs> deliberate decision of the lemmings. Well, I guess uh, I pulled the straw. I gotta go now. There's no way around it. Um, 
And because yes, of this, we sacrifice ourselves to the dark gods. And because because large bodies of water try to fuck you over if you try to swim to them, because never never mm-hmm. swim through hurricanes. It's a death sentence. Um, lemming populations in Norway they have high fluctuations because if the migration star starts, sometimes it will cause a big part of the population to just die off. Another thing is this myth. It peaked with something that was done by Disney and they put like hundreds of these into a truck and brought them to a river for a movie that they made and they all made them run into a river and die just next to a... uh, waterfall just for just to get good pictures oh and that is why everybody believes that lemmings just run into a river to die because they claimed that that's true well great thanks disney that's awesome thank great thank Mm -hmm. you i'm so happy about this uh what an awesome turn of events oh one thing apparently people (laughs) believe that lemmings explode why? I don't know. <laughs> Apparently that's... Why would they believe this? Apparently they think that lemmings can pop and then just die. Because they get very, they get very angry in mating season and uh, they just explode. I don't know. <laughs> just, why? Just uh, like the, why? Uh, I was just so confused. Like, where did this come from? Did someone one day watch a lemming explode and they were like, well, I guess that's just that just must be mating season. Yeah, that one. He was real mad, and he just blew up. Like, maybe, what? Maybe just maybe it's just something you tell kids for fun, <laughs> and I just misread this. Uh, or <laughs> or maybe people just like to believe stuff like that because it's funny. I don't know. I mean, does it okay. really change anything in our life if we believe that lemmings explode? No. Does it make it slightly more amusing? Yeah, kind of. I just like who wrote down in a book. Here is what I learned today: lemmings explode if they can't fuck. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> they're born in the sky. They're made of clouds, and if they if they can't fuck, they just blow right up. <laughs> what the fuck, man? <laughs> Yeah, that's fucking know. science, man. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know what? This is fucking great. This is a great lesson about how science is iterative. Okay, like science is iterative and it builds on the forefathers of the past. But it's our job as scientists to look back and go, "Do lemmings what? really explode <laughs> if we can't fuck?" <laughs> Maybe we should test this. I see that Seymour has written down that they live in the sky city of Fucklandia. Is that real? Maybe we should run some tests. I don't really trust Seymour's notes. This data is all fucked up. I think I broke dogs. <laughs> okay. 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 Holy shit. Okay. I'm sorry. Where were we? We were talking about lemmings and how lemmings. we were making a lemmings game. And the lemmings game was going to be about how these lemmings try to kill themselves constantly. I just can't believe they thought they blew up. 
It's his kids. Okay. All right. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I'll fucking run. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So so they made lemmings. The, <laughs> they were like, hell yeah, lemmings. Yeah. The guys at DMA Design, they decided to create the lemmings game. Uh, and if you do not know lemmings, uh, <laughs> it's sort of a puzzle game. You enter a stage with 100 lemmings. They don't look like the rodent. They look like little people with blue shirts and green hair. And the, the reason they were called lemmings were because they weren't to, to kill themselves and that fit the myth and they actually do fall out of the sky out of them swinging <laughs> swinging door attached to nothing and your goal is to get <laughs> as many lemmings as possible to the end of the level <laughs> okay um which All is right. kind of a big gate it's hidden somewhere else in the level and you can see the entire map and you're given a bunch of tools which you can hand out to your lemmings you can make them dig in all directions, you can build stairs, ex- make them explode. Actually, you can um, <laughs> to to make like a hole. You can redirect other lemmings by turning one of them into a blocker, or you can climb or fall down with a parachute. The uses of these tools are limited, and you have to solve the level within a certain amount of time and with the given tools to succeed. And your goal being to try and get as many lemmings out as you can, right? Yeah. Yeah, by using Deluxe Paint, which was originally an, uh, an EA in-house product to design sprites um, and immediately try them out instead of having to import them into your game, they could design this game really fast. And since the idea that they had was so clear, it didn't take them long to create the fully fleshed out Lemmings game. It was a really fast development process. The game, if you never played lemmings i recommend at least looking at footage you can still get versions of it online for free the game is beautifully designed visually and from a music standpoint originally they wanted to stick to their old technique of just ripping up ripping off other products of culture to use for their music like they wanted to use music from 60s and 70s action shows like the original mission impossible show the the a-team title music Shit like that. They just wanted to put that in the game. I mean, that would have been pretty fucking awesome. Yeah, they they were really into that idea and never even noticed how they were setting themselves up to be sued out of their minds. <laughs> <laughs> and they really they put that into the game. It was in the game already. Oh, they did it with all of these action. They just copied these action soundtracks and put them into the levels. Thankfully, before release, they realized what they had done. And they scrapped the entire music uh, they had come up with. And they had to come up with something else without possibly getting sued. And like, what do you do? You you use public domain music because you don't have time to do anything. So what they did is they used music from the 17th century like of old folk music. Um, like they quickly retrofitted a bunch of really old, old music sheets. Like one title is from the baroque period the well-known pachelbi canon or one level uses a folk song called she'll be coming around the mountain okay and then like they even were able to put some um original creations of their own in these but most of it was orchestral music turned into computer sounds and it it works really well 
you think like this That's is rad. stupid, but it works well. That's also a rush decision that kind of improved the game, I think. Because I don't know if listening to the AT music while lemming playing lemmings would have worked, <laughs> even though the AT music is pretty good. Well, I can see that why they might want to do the action thing, right? Like if you're like trying to get these lemmings through this daring series of traps and you'd want like, ooh, it's oh, are they gonna make it? Oh, it's so crazy and action-packed. But honestly, I like the vibe of like classical music as lemmings explode. What they also did is they made use of the Amiga's ability to use two mice simultaneously by adding a two-player mode where you would have to only save your own lemmings and try to save more of your tiny friends than your enemy would. And it's a neat competitive aspect that I didn't know was in the original game. It's pretty cool. Oh, cool. During development, they never had trouble figuring out what the game was going to be about because they knew it from the start. The real trouble came with marketing the game because until now they only made games that were reiterations of things that were before. Like they could always say, ah, we are going to sell this game. It's like Salamander. And people were like, oh yeah, nice. I always loved Salamander. I'm going to play this game too. And now they had like, this is Lemmings. It's a puzzle game, but not like a puzzle where you put pieces together. It's a bit difficult to explain. And so they had trouble selling the game idea to people without letting them play the game. So what they did is they gave out thousands and thousands of demos. Oh. Every gaming magazine that they could find because the game best explained itself. The entire the entire game was so intuitive. Any further explanation would spoil it. There was no you didn't need a tutorial. It it just it just clicked. It was so simple. And the marketing campaign was a huge hit. Lemmings is one of the classic puzzle games of the 90s. And as one would expect, after release in 1991 through their original publisher, it it was huge. On the first day, it sold 50,000 copies. On the first day. In total, it sold 20 million copies and turned these young men from one day to another, into well-known game designers. Jones was only 25 years old at the time. Let's hear a quote from Mike Daly. We knew it was good, because we all loved making levels and playing with it. We never knew just how big it was going to be, and even after launch, had no real idea, as Dave Jones never told us the numbers until the mid-2000s. But once the reviews started hitting... And we were getting 10 out of 10 and 100%. We guessed we wow. were onto something. One thing we never talk about is what happens to a small company after their first grand hit like that. And there's something like post-launch support that you have to do, which means that you have to provide service to the people that acquired your product. And right. it is entirely different aspect of video game design that these guys had not been confronted with. Lemmings was the top-selling game on 30 different video game platforms. All of, and all of a sudden, all of them ran into bugs or issues or had questions for them. And even though these guys loved their game, they really liked their Lemmings, all of a sudden, their entire days were filled with nothing else. Every phone call... Every conversation was about tiny little lemming people. Russell Kay, one member of the mem- of the DMA, he even says that he could he couldn't even escape the lemmings while sleeping because he started dreaming of nothing else. 
Oh, what a, what a horrible curse. <laughs> Their success sent them to tech support limbo for a while, which also explained why the biggest projects that they had in the next few years were Lemming sequel. They couldn't think of anything else. It was just Lemmings everywhere in their heads. They couldn't <laughs> escape it. They added, they, they, there was a few sequels, more levels, more abilities, more stuff. It was a winning recipe because people loved the, the concept. Um, but after five more games, the concept was, at least for now, fully explored. Small side note here, the town of Dundee, I can show you this too, they built a little monument for them. Really? There's no crocodile. Yeah, it is. Because it was, um, as because they were so proud of these um, game developers that they built them a tiny lemming monument. Uh, if you click that link, you can you can see it. It's a, you can put that in the sources for you guys too. It's a really, really neat. You can see really big lemmings. Oh, that's like made of, really adorable. Yeah, made of prawns. They put it in front of the um, media park and it's still there. You can, if you ever go to Dundee, it's close to Edinburgh. Yeah, imagine that there's like a like a pillar and uh, like a, I don't know, maybe eight feet tall, if I guessed, maybe shorter. And there's three bronze lemmings who are trying to climb it. And there's one on the top. There's one in the middle that's in the midst of climbing. And there's one that looks like it has a bunch of bricks or something like it's like laying bricks so that you could climb it's, it or um, something it's a reference to the tools that they have one is the brick builder one is the climber and i know one is just hanging out yeah one of one of them okay i see i thought it was naked for a minute because you can very clearly see its booty yeah that one up on top of the pillar has the, the most uh voluptuous booty you can imagine um, <laughs> that is a voluptuous <laughs> lemming butt <laughs> It's just an interesting choice of design. Check it out. <laughs> I, there, there's so many bad jokes I want to make right now. I'm going to let them go. Let them go. There they go. Woo! Ooh, off into the sky. Bye, jokes. During this time, Team A Design, they grew into a big company, which is why Dundee was so proud of them um, as a local product. They split up into several departments, had their own motion capture group, and they grew big at exactly the right time. Because this was the early 90s, as we have learned from your episodes, the great console releases of the 90s were coming, and DMA was ready. Mm -hmm. They had tons of money, renown, and skill to share with the gaming world. And now, we get to the actual episode, because this was only the beginning. It's a dark twist! It's a dark twist. DMA designed, they were tired of lemmings. Their publisher, Psygnosis, was acquired by Sony, which gave them okay. the opportunity to find a new patron. And they were like, this is 1994, three years after the original Lemmings, and they had other side projects already, including this one game called Uni Racers, which is about unicycles racing along a 2D track, <laughs> performing stunts, <laughs> shit like that. And they I fucking love everything about these people. Yeah. And so what they, what they did is they signed with Nintendo, because Nintendo loved them. Nintendo is huge, like you know Miyamoto. He's huge about puzzle games yeah. and these these uh, puzzle-like experience that challenge your mind, but are also kind of cute. Huh? And so they signed with Nintendo, and the Uni Racers was published for the Super Nintendo. They had a Super Nintendo game now, and so all of a sudden they were in cahoots with with Nintendo. And Nintendo, though in the beginning, 
would not commit to keep DMA around, which made them unsure. So they were like, okay, let's just look at the other consoles. So they started learning the technology of the 3DO and were like, okay, we're just going to make, there's so many consoles now, we can just work for anybody because we have a big name. Yeah. Maybe, maybe strike a deal with the 3DO guys. But then Uniracer sold really well and Nintendo made them another offer. And they were like, yeah, we have this console coming up. You, you're going to do an episode about that console, the Nintendo 64. Mm-hmm. And they wanted DMA to design one of the release titles. Oh, shit. That's a big deal. Yeah. And by then, DMA, they had kind of figured out a lot of different technologies and vastly extended their skill set. And they wanted to move away from the puzzle game franchise because they were so tired of it. And they wanted to create something visceral something brutal back to the old days yeah. where you just shoot things and kill them a good old violent game with guns and murder but they ran into a problem nintendo they were huge like technosis the, the guys that got bought by sony they didn't know much mm-hmm. about the industry just like they did and what year is this again this is 19, 1994 1994 okay yeah all right i'm i'm trying to uh, man i I haven't fully finished the N64 episode yet. Um, it might have been, they might not even have decided on that name because for a while they were calling it Project Reality. And Ultra 64 was a name too that they had, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, they floated a few. Okay, anyway, sorry for the, the tangent nope, there. No problem, yeah. So Jones describes this relationship with Nintendo like this. It's a very hard relationship because their quality is so high that it's so hard to match the quality of the products they do. And they really want you to focus on making Nintendo products. It's very hard to write games that you're not writing for yourself, which is traditionally what I've done. And basically, you just have to listen to them because we're not as good as they are. Nobody in the world is as good as they are. So Holy shit. We'd, be draft, we'd, we'd be daft to try and say, we think you're wrong. So we just have to work with them. And we implement everything that they ask for. So that's the relationship that they had with Nintendo because they were like, this is, this is Nintendo. We have nothing to say here. This is just working with them is a blessing. Oh, okay. I think that I was confused here for a second. Yeah. I think that I thought you were saying, and I think I misheard, that Nintendo was speaking of the Lemmings guys so highly that Nintendo was like, they're the fucking best. We just give them anything they The want. other way around. Dave Jones, right, the boss right, right. of the DMA guys, was speaking of that about yeah. Nintendo because they were pu- probably getting published by them soon. And he was like, right. this relationship wasn't healthy. <laughs> Okay, I completely understand now because I was like, I've I've never heard of Nintendo ever bowing to anyone other than themselves. Yeah. So and this entire feeling that it was made worse by Nintendo's hardware being so perfect. It was it was a really well made piece of hardware, and they were really yeah. rather intimidated and struggling to keep up. This was another level of development that they hadn't encountered yet, and then there was another problem. Because Nintendo has this family-friendly gaming policy where every game should be approachable for the entire family. And DMA was making a game called Body Harvest about about aliens harvesting human life on Earth. Oh, shit. And you have to slaughter them all. (laughs) 
and Nintendo wasn't <laughs> having it. They were cons- they were censoring the shit out of the game that it was entirely cancelled. Apparently, Shigeru Miyamoto personally asked for more puzzles and less score. And what? <laughs> because he Shigeru Miyamoto, he loved Lemmings, and he was like, "This is the game yeah. that I want, but just make it for the Nintendo sixty four." And they they didn't they didn't want to do Lemmings anymore. It was Lemmings was done. <laughs> Um, <laughs> imagine this situation where like Miyamoto walks in and he sees an alien's chest explode into visceral gore and he's like what if there was a a puzzle to make his chest explode what if there was a mushroom there <laughs> yeah. can, we add, can, we, can we add Mario to the thing <laughs> this, uh, okay thanks <laughs> <laughs> this episode's been a fucking wild ride, dude. Yeah. So, be, be, like Miyamoto thought by striking a deal with him, hey, he was going to get something like Lemmings, but that wasn't happening. <laughs> Not at all. But DMA. DMA <clears throat> okay. would never make a puzzle game again. They just, they just refused. And Nintendo was not going to put their name onto Body Harvest. And they would have to find another publisher. And that's how the relationship of DMA Design and Tendo ended abruptly. This was wow. a huge bummer for them, but it also kind of freed them again. But they already started working on Body Harvest and had made progress. And they also started working on other titles for Nintendo as well. They, they started putting, putting resources into that because DMA Design by now was a big company. They weren't just 10 people anymore. It was like more like 50 people. Mm-hmm. But they couldn't just abandon Body Harvest. So what they had to do, they put a lot more work into it and they f- tried to find another publisher, which they did. It took them until 1998 to find two new publishers, which were Gremlin Interactive, which they usually sell sports and racing games. And they also found Midway Games, who one should know because oh. they created the Mortal Kombat games. Mm-hmm. But also, like they also made a whole bunch of the original NBA and NFL games. So Body Harvest was still published for the Nintendo, but by another publisher. It saw release, and this time of development of Body Harvest, it kind of took a toll on DMA, because the the core team, they were still those same guys from the ACC, and they felt like they got jerked around by the big fishes in the industry a lot, and that, that didn't make them feel good. But Jones, he claims that in these years, they learned something about what kind of games they like to make. Because Body Harvest was an open world game. You could run around, you you get set down into this world, and you just have to find your way through the levels and stop the aliens from harvesting humanity. And I remember that I actually played it at a friend's house one day, I think really? in 2001. Yeah, he had it. It was a really fun, but really difficult to get around game because it was an open world. Nobody told you what to do. It was right. like, you have to stop the aliens from harvesting the humans. And it had a really Nintendo 64-like graphics about it. Of course. But what they learned about themselves is, at least according to, to Jones, is that linearity doesn't really suit them. They they started out with linear games with those side scrollers, you know. But then they were like, "Oh, this doesn't right. really this this isn't our jam." They like to create open experiences, like how in Lemmings, nobody tells you how to solve a level. You just get set in a level and you have to finish. And you get given a set of tools. Yeah, 
and you how you use the tools is up to you yeah. and in body harvest you get set down in an entirely open 3d world and you have to figure out where to go jones says i just love games that are pretty open-ended you can try things you can go wherever you want jones knew by then that he could not rely on nintendo he had you know, like he could not go back to them he had to find a publisher that was willing to provoke this is when he came across a new video game branch of BMG Music. Side story. Okay. BMG, <laughs> one of the biggest music publishers in the world, was currently expanding. And these two guys called Sam and Dan Hauser were put in charge of this new gaming branch of BMG. They were the sons of a jazz club owner in London and had this odd addiction to gangster rap. And they really wanted to create the baddest and most pissed off games out there. And <laughs> okay, yeah, and BMG they had an in-house development studio, but apparently none of these developers understood their vision of gangster rap computer games. And just just to try to explain um, to like just try to explain to a bunch of nerds how to be a real gangster uh, and how to make unimaginably cool games instead of lame children toys. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I wouldn't have understood that vision either, but they were, they were, they were into what body harvest was because they saw that their own developers couldn't make a game cool, but these other dudes could. So they wanted a brutal game no bullshit, just hardcore violence, stuff like that. They wanted more from what DNA had to offer. And this is where we get to the game Race and Chase. Race and Chase? Yeah. Race and Chase. Okay. In 1994, that was like they, they were doing things simultaneously. It's not a chronological timeline because there were many people by now. DMA was growing uh -huh. rapidly and they hired someone called Brian Baglow. Brian Beglow was hired to the team and he was given a side project because the higher-ups at DMA, the original ACC guys, they would give ideas that they didn't think much of but still thought were worth following. To They gave them to inexperienced members of the team to work on so they could gain experience. And they were given this sandbox engine that Mike Daly had come up with that was kind of cool but really impractical because it was huge, creating these large maps on which many things happen simultaneously couldn't really be realized from a technical viewpoint, it, but it was much larger than what, for example, Body Harvest could do. So Baglow was given this engine, which she could build a city with, a city you could, I don't know, drive around in. And originally, they were inspired by these videos of car chases where you would see everything from up top. And Daly conveyed this idea to Baglow, like, you, you got to do this like this. It's like it's going to be a cop simulator where you would be a member of the police force chasing criminals in your car through the city. And Baglow, he didn't really enjoy that concept. He didn't really enjoy being a policeman. The most fun was driving over the pedestrians in, in that in that simulator. But that's not what something the police would do because that's criminal, right? So Baglow, he flipped the script. Race and Chase would be a crime simulator. Baglow describes the switch like that. Just that mindset alone, without changing the game in any way, all of a sudden made you go, oh yeah, that's quite interesting. This was one of loads of ideas that were thrown out there at the time, but this was the one that made 
or the crucial difference, meaning the one turning it into a crime simulator. Okay. To get inspiration, Baglow, like he had a small team around him, they just started watching gangster movies and they added everything that they saw in these movies, they just added. They just added every pop culture reference into that game. And okay. this and you know, this wasn't the experienced old guard of DMA that knew how to handle, structure a development process. This was the new guys and they had no clue how to do this. So they completely <laughs> overwhelmed themselves with things that had to be in the game. And these, of course. Yeah, they were, they were highly enthusiastic and they loved their idea. And they were, they were well-funded too, because as you remember, the Lemmings games were still bringing in revenue. So they were supposed to create something within 18 months but they were not even close to finishing after that time. Uh, it would take okay. them 30 months to finish it, maybe about twice the oh, time. Man. In their mind, in this game, you could get missions from phone booths from different factions in the game and then solve the problems mm -hmm. in any way as long as you achieved your objective. And this caused the different aspects of the game that had to be considered to expand rapidly. It was turning into a huge game out of nowhere, Race and Chase turned into a monster. So while doing all of these things, they really ramped up the violence in the game. On the map, you would have all of these pedestrians walking out everywhere, walking around. And like one of these guys from Bagler's team, he came up with this script that would make the pedestrians walk in lines behind each other. And since they had a lot of trouble giving the pedestrians distinct features because they could only color their clothing um, in a single color, they, they were really unsure what kind of people would walk in a line. So they made them chant and gave them like tambourine sounds and dressed them mm -hmm. orange. And all of a sudden you had like Hare Krishnas, like the, <laughs> the Hindu sect, walking down the street. And as a really dark joke, if you managed to run them all over at once, the entire screen would be covered in the mantra, Guranga, which means be happy. Wow. And they thought wow. it was the funniest thing. That is the 90s. <laughs> it did not take long until they came up with the original of the game. Um which I bet you know by now. Grand Theft Auto? It's Grand Theft Auto. And I, listen, man, I did not expect <laughs> that we would be talking about Sky Rats. And now we're on Grand Theft Auto. Like, what a fucking tale. I was surprised I as just well. Like... I had both games on my list of things I wanted to do episodes about. And then I noticed, oh, this is the case, this is the same studio. <laughs> um, oh, and man. to this day, like this is how it spawned, the original GTA game. And to this day, it's one of the most well-known video game franchise around. Even people absolutely that insane. don't play video games often know what GTA is. Yeah. If you, or they think they know what GTA is. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good point. We're going to come to that in a moment. Um, look... But what, how would you describe GTA, especially the original first two, because those are closest to what we're talking about right now? So, uh, full disclosure, I didn't mention this earlier, but I played Lemmings once when I was a kid, just to go back a little bit. Cool. Uh, it was on this like disc of um, 
like I would, I would always put these discs of like multiple games all packaged into one. This is relevant here in a moment. So I played Lemmings on this like packaged together disc of like, here's like 20 games that used to be popular. And I played it on my PS1. I was really bad at it. And I think I played it once. Yeah, um, it was difficult. Yeah. But I, it was difficult. And I was more into things like Sonic or Crash Bandicoot yeah. or something like that. Um, similarly, I got some, I swear it was like some double disc and it had Grand Theft Auto 2 and something else on it. And I was like, oh my gosh, is this that Grand Theft Auto game people keep talking about? And it was like a, it was like a top down game, right? Like, I don't know if I'm remembering this incorrectly, but it was like top down and you were watching like, you know, a person run through this top down cityscape and you could get in cars and, and, and such. I remember the controls feeling very jank for what I was used to. And I would just kind of wander around and like run things over. And I like walked up to a phone booth and got a mission, but then I couldn't figure out where to go. And I realized it was not the game for me. And I played whatever else was bundled on the disc. Yeah, actually doing the missions in the game, at least for when I started playing the game, which was when I was like 12 or 10, maybe Mm -hmm. even, was really difficult because those missions you uh, there wasn't localization for the game as far as I remember and I'd never understood what was going on so I just stuck to running over pedestrians and shooting people (laughs) that's wonderful yeah so the thing is that BMG Interactive their publisher they the gaming branch of BMG Music they agreed to publish Mm -hmm. GTA but they really didn't like how DMA studios would not stick to their deadlines they liked the whole violence and gore shit that was what the houses were looking for, right? But let's hear a quote from Backlow. GTA was under constant threat of cancellation. It was entirely new. Nothing else like this had been done. But at the time, it didn't look groundbreaking. It looked like this silly Wii top-down game that was only two-dimensional. But despite the fact, and he is really proud about that, you had X, Y, and Z axis. I nearly punched more than one person that said it wasn't 3D. We were competing against things like Tomb Raider that had come out no long before us, and some of the levels in that were awesome. In Tomb Raider? Yeah, in Tomb Raider. You you thought this 3D thing could be really quite big. For the longest time, we were adding new things into the game, new ideas and new graphics, engine, all of these different things. And of course, what it meant was that nothing was getting fixed. At least three Mm. quarters of the game's development, we had no idea what was going to appear at the end. In fact, I'll go further, it was probably about six seventh of the game's life it could have been a horrible disaster the publishers were nervous about it and really weren't sure if it was going to to work out and if they should continue to support it and if it was actually going to produce something of any value at the end i mean that's kind of a gamble right it is a gamble especially especially when they're taking like twice the time they said that they would yeah because that's money that's every month that passes is a lot of money that gets spent on wages and none of this cancellation luckily happened though gta one the original one got released in 1997 Mm -hmm. and at first it wasn't too well received because as Bagler described it wasn't a well-refined game because they they lacked the time. But then something else happened. And that is what GTA is mostly known for. This game was the most controversial thing 
the video game world had seen until then. There were far more violent games out there, but for some reasons this one struck a nerve. So before a single unit was sold, the game it was actually condemned by the British, French and German government. It was wow. it was instantly banned in Brazil. And this is because GTA did not depict a fantasy world. You were not murdering aliens mm. or robots or fairies or dragons. You were killing innocent bystanders just for being there. And you even gotcha. get points if you do it really well. <laughs> the game... Had, yeah. Yeah. The game had... I, f I feel it. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> the game had... Especially for back then. The game had 200 missions that were all about committing the worst atrocities on those three maps that were included in the game, which are, by the way, for all of you GTA enthusiasts, already called Liberty City, San Andreas, and Vice City. Wow. And the titles... These are the city names that would be the city names in the later 3D titles. Because if you don't know GTA, GTA is still around. And it's huge. It's I cannot believe the staying power of GTA Five. Like, like the fact that it is still around and played in such an insane amount is like it kind of blows my mind. I guess GTA Online or whatever it is mm -hmm. is the more, the more um, well-known version of that that gets sees a lot of play. Yeah. But yeah, I just it constantly blows my mind. And this is and this controversy. It's not because the game was good it wasn't the main factor to why it sold well. It was a huge hit, not because it looked great, it didn't look great. 1997 saw games, as he said, like Tomb Raider. Final Fantasy VII was released in that year. Star Fox 64, Crash Bandicoot 2. Mm -hmm. Really great looking games that were well designed. But in comparison to all of those other games, grown-ups really hated GTA. It was the gaming equivalent of listening to noisy punk rock. It was cursing at the dinner table, but ten times worse. It was condemned by the European governments. And as I said, yeah. in comparison to other games, it wasn't that bad. And Backlow agreed. Let's, let's hear a quote from him. When we were starting to get denounced in the houses of commons and lords, when the press were up in arms, we were amused by it. Sorry, I should say bemused by it. We were like, really? You think this is bad? Because it's all top down. <laughs> there was no actual real cutscenes or animations or anything, and everything was implied. At every point, it was just text that served to tell you the kind of things that were happening, the kind of things that were going on. It was absolutely not a game where we set out to try and be provocative. And... Because of all of this, DMA Games went from a little clubhouse at the ACC to become, because all of you are confused, because GTA wasn't, GTA isn't a DMA Games, it's by Rockstar Games. DMA Games would now be named Rockstar Games. Because of this huge controversy, the GTA spawned, Sam Hauser fell totally in love with the guys. He was, he loved it. Sam, like BMG Interactive, he was like, yes, burn, burn. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he brought DMA from Dundee to Edinburgh and rebranded the studio as Rockstar North, which is the first iteration of Rockstar Games. Dude, I'm just, I'm fucking blown away here. And this is how the franchise that sold 
until this day 220 million units was created out of lemmings and out of their hate for making anything child-friendly puzzle-like. <laughs> we can never do lemmings again but we have to do the violence part more and more and, and that's it that's the entire story I'm not going to go further into GTA GTA has a few more parts it's going to be GTA 2 which was 2D2 then there's going to be GTA lots of 3D parts it sees releases on all kinds of platforms it's a great hit but That's not the important part of the history. This is the start. And maybe another important part is that the later that the the current GTA parts are not developed by any of the original people. Mm. They all went away after GTA 2. Because Dave Jones, let's do a little wrap-up here. Dave Jones, he stayed with Rockstar Games until GTA 2, um, which came out in 1999. But Then he went away and now works on different projects. Mike Daly and Russell Kay, they worked as independent developers. And then they went to Yo-Yo Games, where they left the development of this Game Maker Studio, which was like an early attempt to create a commercially available game engine sold to private people so they can create their own games. I'm pretty sure that still exists, right? Yeah. Like Game Maker Studio? Yeah, yeah, like there's like millions of things made in Game Maker Studio. That's awesome. They created that. That's their thing. No shit. Um, Brian Beglow also left Rockstar Games and now works as a consultant. And as I said, none of the original team remains with Rockstar Games. And Rockstar Games has so many branches now and so many games that are not just GTA. But the brand, like the brand, has grown to huge proportions. And that's my story. Okay, I just wanted to be sure, but I Google because I was pretty sure Undertale was made in um, Game Maker Studio. And so I just Googled Undertale Game Maker Studio and the top hit is uh, Undertale showcased by Yo-Yo Games. <laughs> so yeah, like that's crazy. That's their company. Do you, that, I just like, what, what the fuck do we even call this episode, Docs? Uh, <laughs> like, Lemmings and cr- GTA. Just... <laughs> I do think it might be a spoiler though, right? The twist is good. It is. Mm-hmm. You know, I will say that some people have told me uh, before that there, there's like two sides to the people who listen to the episodes. There are people who listen to the episodes who are like, how the fuck do we get to Grand Theft Auto out of this? Right. And then there are other people who are like, oh, I wish I didn't know what this was called. So I was surprised too. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess you could go and download all the episodes off the site and randomize them or something. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a, a close your eyes when you hit, hit the button on Spotify. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well fuck dude i learned a lot today i mean one i learned crocodiles come from dundee two disney murdered hundreds of animals for fun three sky rats angrily explode if they don't fuck and uh (laughs) if you're gonna make visceral alien murder game put some fucking puzzles in there man put the puzzles throw a couple puzzles in This is fucking great. This is such a good episode. Thank you. I really had fun. Um, the, I just, I feel like I'm having some kind of fucking fever dream, man. Like, the, like these guys were in a club and then they made a bunch of games and then they had made lemmings and suddenly we're at fucking Grand Theft Auto and the House of Lords is denouncing them. Like, this is crazy shit. This is crazy shit. Yeah. I think that's the, I remember with every 
I think it has died down a bit, but I remember G uh -huh. every GTA part that came out had a reiteration of the controversy as well. Like, mm -hmm. wasn't there the thing with GTA 5, 2, where they were like, this is a game about killing hookers. Why are we letting our children play these games? And everybody was like, this is... <laughs> okay, so... Uh, I wrote my senior thesis in undergrad on um, video game censorship and Docs and I have talked many times about how someday we will really want to do like a video game censorship episode. Um, there's a lot of reasons that this occurs. Uh, there's, there's often like moral panic about things in society. It happens a lot in American society. Um, there's always some, oh, it's the, oh, it's fucking Pokemon cards or making our kids be bad or whatever. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so when there, when these things occur, like, how do I want to put this video games? It, it, not in the modern day, there was a lot more focus on like games that push the envelope. Right. And so now it's a hell of a lot easier to get really crazy out there, gory, whatever stuff, but it wasn't so easy back in the day. And there were usually controversies over it. There's a lot of reasons that we could get into. It has to do with like what console manufacturers will like put on their consoles, the whole rating system. It's a whole fucking thing. So every time one of these would come out, um, it, there would be some new thing, right? Like, well, what if you have a 3d sex scene where you can see penetration? Okay. What can we fucking release that on the PlayStation? Probably not. And so like, there's a reason why this start of a controversy every time is because all these games kind of, they, they'd get more technologically advanced. Right. And so, now in the modern day some of these things look really quaint to us right like oh i went and i got in a car and it shook a little bit because there was a prostitute inside but like um they were they were crazy they kind of pushed the envelope at the time that they were created so like i get it culturally but also there was a whole there was a whole thing um i think it was gta 4 they had a uh you were going to be able to have like a full on sex scene mm -hmm. yeah. and they decided that they didn't want to, and they removed it from the game. And then someone came up with what was called the hot coffee mod. <laughs> I don't even know why it was called that the hot coffee mod. And you could like play the sex scene. Like they had never taken it off the disc, but you needed all these mods to do it. And so then that caused this whole fucking crazy thing. It was all over the news. Oh, they're selling sex simulators to our kids. And it's like, no, dude, you can't even access that unless you're like heavily modding your PlayStation or whatever. So I don't know. It, there's a lot of reasons for this we won't even get into, but I'm very opinionated on the subject. Yeah. Well, thank you. Good times. It was good times. Fucking thank you, dude. This was great. <laughs> I haven't had this much fun in an episode in a while. Like, no offense to our other episodes, but I had a blast this time. I'm happy. What do we say in the end? We say, uh, oh, the sources. I will post this in the... You can look up all the nice pamphlets of the ACC, and I will um, mm -hmm. share with Tyler some footage that he can share with you so we can, we can get this to you because there's some really neat stuff there. Look at the videos of Manners. Um, look at listen to the music from Menace and for Blood Money for Blood Money too it's the best oh, okay. <laughs> and I'm gonna listen to that right now just to make myself feel better <laughs> and just 
take care of yourself, guys. And I hope you you all stay well and healthy. Yeah. Stay safe out there. If you're one of those last holdouts who refuses to get vaccinated, please just fucking do it. So this long nightmare can yeah. end. I it, would really appreciate it that. It doesn't so, hurt too bad and it's okay. Yeah, you'll be yeah. fine. Uh, so thanks for listening and have a good day. Have a good one, friends. Thanks. Bye. Bye.